Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The poem says, Human voices wake us and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So one of the things you may have heard me mention from time to time, I guess has become a, a mantra of mine, which is that art of whatever kind, uh, its purpose for me is, on the one hand, empathy, the ability to see and experience and understand and maybe even come to identify with the lives and experiences of other people. And the other is simply the alleviation of loneliness, whether for uh, the artist or for whoever is reading or listening or watching or viewing, whatever the art is. Uh, Those are the big things for me. And while I've tried as much as possible to not make my own mantra or my own uh, standard everybody else's, I've never tried to say that that is the only thing that art should ever be viewed as. Uh, It's come to my attention recently that I assumed that that was the case more than I should have for other people. And I just wanted to look at today where that may have come from in my own mind, how uh, how that came to be. And it might make it easier also then if I try to investigate it in myself to try and see how other people have come to other conclusions as well. And as far as I can tell, the story begins when I was about four years old. As my mother tells it, I was sitting on her lap and she was reading stories to me, probably before bedtime. And at one point, I kept turning to her and saying, can you say that again? Can you say that again? Can you repeat what you just said? And it dawned on them, it dawned on my mother and then on my parents that I was hard of hearing and that I, by the time they caught on to it, uh, I couldn't hear very much at all. And I think about that time an awful lot, uh, what it was like as a small child to basically be living in a realm of silence and not really knowing or understanding or being able to convey the idea that maybe that's not the world that I should have been living in. I didn't know that I was missing out on sound. And so I think of myself sitting around in quiet and 
what that must have been like, what, what I liked about it and maybe what I didn't like about it. And it turned out that uh, between the ages of four and I believe 12, I had about uh, six or eight surgeries on my ears uh, to correct that. But before, uh, usually I would have a surgery and the lead up to a new one would be uh, a horrendous ear infection, a uh, horrible pain. And so that sometimes before I could get the surgery, but when I was still in the midst of one of these ear infections, I would be stuck up at night by myself, unable to sleep. And I remember it would be comfortable at one point lying on one side and turning over again, lying on the other side. And this would just go on and on. Um, the way I remember it now is that it went on for days. I'm sure that's not true. It was probably uh, a night or two uh, every now and again. But the nights were so intense and so memorable in their own way that uh, they have sort of taken over memories of mine. But one time I do remember the, the great comfort that I derived from listening to uh, Larry King on the radio. He was broadcasting while a hurricane was going on on the East Coast. And I basically spent all night listening to these voices uh, from somewhere else in the country, from somewhere else in the world. And that was my comfort against silence, against the quiet, against the, the pain that I was feeling in my head. And I really do wonder if the, the final manifesto, I was always writing manifestos starting when I was 19 or 20 or so, and I got sick of them because I saw how useless grand statements really were, bullet point statements about art or anything. But I wonder if the one that I finally landed on, which is uh, alleviation of loneliness and empathy, I wonder if it started back then when I was uh, in a world that was completely quiet and where I couldn't hear other people and probably couldn't speak to them as well either because I couldn't hear them. Although uh, my mother tells me that when I would go to the doctor, I was very uh, adept at reading lips, which is a nice thing to think about too. Um, one of the tests he gave, uh, I, was, I don't think I was trying to trick the doctor but um, he was asking me to repeat whatever it was that he was saying, and I was, and I was proud that I was able to do it. But when he covered his mouth, obviously I couldn't do it, so I could read his lips and repeat what he was saying. But if he covered his mouth, I could not see it, and I could not repeat it. And that's when they really knew there was an issue. Um, and this came back to me again lately, watching uh, Ken Burns' documentary about baseball. And just a handful of stories, one of them which stayed with me from when I first saw the series when I was 13 or 14 years old, was about Ty Cobb, the great uh, player for the Detroit Tigers, uh, grumpy, violent, uh, horrible human being, but a great baseball player. And there's the story of him traveling with another player, because that's what you did. You shared hotel rooms. I guess you still could these days, but it's hard to imagine millionaire players being forced to share hotel rooms with other players. 
And it was after a game, and Ty Cobb was going back to his rooms with the player that he shared a room with while they traveled. And the the other player went to take a bath. And Cobb just flew into a rage and had to pull him out of the bathtub. And because usually Ty Cobb took his bath or his shower first. And the line that always stayed with me was he yelled at this player that he's pulled out of the bathtub dripping wet and naked. He he yelled to him, don't you understand? I have to be first. I have to be the first to do these things. He had to be first in everything. Everything was a competition for him. And the next one is about Walter Johnson, the great pitcher for the uh, Washington Senators. There's the story, first of all, of, of how he was discovered by scouts who were wandering the country, uh, and they ended up in Idaho. And they found this amazing pitcher, I believe, in the early, uh, early 20th century, 1905 or 6 or so. And the report came back that there was this astounding pitcher out in Idaho who throws faster than anybody ever has, and who has the best control of anybody ever. And they said uh, they know that he has the best control of anybody they've ever seen, because if he didn't, there would be dead bodies all over Idaho uh, who would have been killed by this guy's pitches. But uh, Walter Johnson never won a World Series until uh, the last few years of his career. And the story is told that he got to Game 7 of the World Series. It was a tie game, and uh, the Washington Senators were at home, so they had the bottom of, bottom of the inning to score and win each time. And they brought Walter Johnson in to pitch the ninth, the 10th, and then the 11th inning, maybe even the 12th, to, uh, to try and win the game. All he needed to do was get through the innings, and then his team would be able to take the bottom of the inning to win the game. And he was on one day's rest. He had started the game the day before, and he did it, ninth, 10th, and 11th, maybe the 12th inning, and they won in in the bottom of one of those innings. And the story said that he uh, was weeping as he walked off the field. Now, these are the kinds of stories that I have always attached myself to. These are the ones that I have always remembered. These are the things that I nowadays uh, pour on to my wife, um, maybe when she doesn't want to hear about baseball or whatever it is right now. But these are the things that, that I have become attached to, these, to me, extremely human stories. And it, it struck me again lately when I was sitting back one day wondering, do I really need to spend time outside of writing poetry? Do I need to spend time writing prose at all? Do I need to be writing short stories? Do I need to be writing novels and trying to get them published because it is such a hassle trying to get them published? Do I really need to spend so much time doing this when I could very easily give that time to more poetry or, uh, or just to my family. Do, do I need to do that? And on the same day, I came across that uh, passage from Song of Myself that I posted here uh, about a week or so ago. I think it was entitled, uh, Walt Whitman Affirms the World. I read that on the porch and, uh, and was just 
astounded by it. And I came back inside and I put on Ken Burns baseball again. And I watched the half hour or so that he spends retelling the Black Sox scandal of 1919 when uh, the Chicago White Sox were a, a massively underpaid team there uh, and they ended up getting involved with gamblers and they ended up agreeing to throw the World Series to get paid a bunch of money. And the way that Ken Burns and the, the, the narration, the, the photographs, the commentators, all of it, the way all of it worked together was so moving to me that I realized, especially right after the experience of Whitman, that I need to write poetry. The, the impulse is always there. The compulsion to write poetry is always there. It has always been there. But the need to tell stories that aren't poetry, the need to tell stories in prose or just here in this podcast, the need to tell stories that way is also something that I have always felt a compulsion and a need to do. I have felt, as many writers say, people stirring inside of me all the time, uh, voices, situations, uh, emotions, histories, all of these things, and it has never left me. And so I came to the conclusion that uh, even if these things never get published, I do need to keep trying to tell these stories. Uh, it is just something buried deep within me, and I wonder if it isn't in part buried within me because of that uh, early experience of silence. And when I went to think about it some more, uh, especially in connection with what I said at the beginning of this episode, that uh, it w I was reminded recently that not everyone approaches reading or art in this way. Uh, I was, I just made a list of things that, uh, that I have become attached to simply not because of the academic interest, not because of the social interest, like the, if you know about these things, you'll be able to improve the world. Um, I, I have attached myself to these things because they are shortcuts to human lives and stories and emotion. And here's just a list of them. Uh, one of them is uh, the, the books that Studs Terkel has done, where he just interviews people about their lives. And so within the course of 500 pages, you have, say, uh, 30 or 40 people being interviewed, just talking about themselves. When I talk about William Trevor, the Irish short story writer, or when I talk about William Shakespeare, while I talk about how great they are as writers, usually what I actually mean by that, what I actually say, what I actually focus on, and I think I've said it a few times here, is that the two of them have created such a huge human community with their characters and their stories, whether the plays or the short stories, that it astounds me. And, and in reading them and in experiencing them, uh, whatever loneliness I feel uh, is alleviated, that that is what I go to. Uh, Shakespeare is great poetry, but he used great poetry in the service of creating 
human beings on the page. Um, I've mentioned the magazine called Lapham's Quarterly before, which is just uh, a year, uh, four times uh, yearly anthology of, of voices from history. It would take years to uh, compile or find all of these voices in any other way. And here I have four times a year about 200 pages of voices from all over the place, all countries, all times in history, right there in my lap. There are uh, podcasts like Desert Island Discs from the BBC and another one from the BBC called In Our Time. In Our Time is just uh, a gathering of, you might say, scholars to talk about a historical event or a historical person or a book or a movie or something culturally relevant or relevant to science or history. And for a half hour or 45 minutes, because they're outside the classroom and because the host is so good, you hear extremely intelligent people talking about extremely important things in an immensely humane and direct way that, again, it would take years and years to find otherwise. Um, just go look up uh, uh, In Our Time and look at all the subjects they have there. It is a real, again, a shortcut to humanity and history. Uh, as uh, Marlon Brando says in Apocalypse Now, it is a diamond thunderbolt uh, straight into the brain. Uh, it is a uh, uh, an impossible shortcut to to humanity, at least for me. And Desert Island Discs is the same thing. Uh, when I discovered this, it's, it's basically a half hour again, or 45 minutes, of an interviewer talking to someone who is known, someone who is culturally known, uh, an artist, a politician, an actor, uh, whoever it is. And you hear what their favorite music is, and in between the music, they just talk about their life. And again, empathy. Uh, you hear more personal stories told succinctly than, than I can think of finding anywhere else, and it would be difficult to find it anywhere else. And if we want to talk about empathy again, it is that uh, the surprise I felt, just one example out of thousands by now, I believe Desert Island Disc started in the mid-40s, and nearly all the episodes are now on, uh, now online. And for a while there, I just downloaded as many of them as I could and listened to them. And I was astounded to hear that Margaret Thatcher, one of her favorite pieces of music, is Beethoven's fifth piano concerto, The Emperor. And that is also one of my favorite pieces of music. And so I never thought to have anything in common with Margaret Thatcher, but there we are. And that might sound like a small example, but it uh, it wasn't a small example to me. It was extremely revealing. And the last example I have here is uh, Andrew Solomon, the wonderful uh, writer who wrote a, a great book about depression, but also an immense book about parenting called Far From the Tree. And it's about 800 pages uh, about parents and their gifted and or difficult children. 
and simply what it is like to parent these children. And I've spoken to people who've read this book who read it primarily for the advice it would give you or the insight it would give you into parenting. Um, and even though I am a parent now and I read it uh, while I was a parent, after my daughter was born, I read it again primarily as a collection, a huge collection, a huge uh, compendium of a human population that otherwise would be impossible to find uh, elsewhere. And, and that's striking uh, to realize that not everyone, certainly not everyone goes to just my examples, uh, Ken Burns, in our time, Desert Island Discs, Lapham's Quarterly, Studs Terkel, William Trevor, William Shakespeare, Andrew Solomon. Probably other writers would have other lists of this kind, um, and even those who might have the same list wouldn't go to them for the same reasons that I have just mentioned. The alleviation of loneliness, the looking for uh, the best or the most succinct expressions of human life and experience and emotion, and uh, empathy, understanding these other lives. And so the reason then, the, the, uh, the reason that I need to look for these things is telling as well. Um, if I was four years old and living in a realm of silence, you would think that when I came out of it, I would then be in a realm of sociability. I would just uh, be happy to go from one person to another. I would not be the wallflower type. But in fact, I am the wallflower type. I am the fly on the wall. And so the reason that I'm looking for these shortcuts to people and these shortcuts to emotion and experience, these shortcuts to uh, access to huge uh, populations of people is because on some level I probably am a fairly lonely person and that's not really anybody's fault and if anything it is the reason that I write and so uh, I'm willing to pay that price it's not a terrible price it helps just to put a name to it so that when I came across uh, a comment by Harold Bloom where he says that uh, Shakespeare's character, uh, Falstaff, is more real to him than most people he encounters every day in his life. I sort of understood what he meant. And when he says in general that uh, his book, The Western Canon, or that his ideas of trying to make reading lists for people of the best writing is not only that there are, there's only so much time for us to read, but also there is only so much time that we all have to simply get to know other people. And in my case, and I'm sure in Bloom's case, if you are spending quite a bit of time reading and another bit of time with your family, there is also only so much energy and only so much ability that certain people can even have to be social face-to-face -face directly. Um, I, when I look at, at uh, 
popular notions of of how relationships or of how our views of sex should be viewed, um, especially by conservative people who say that uh, sex and uh, children and all of this should only be bound in marriage um, and not outside of that. And certainly other versions of these ideas as well. It strikes me that this, these notions of what relationships and friendships and uh, uh, experiences of sex, uh, all of these are based on uh, an ideal of what relationships and friendships and sex should be. And they're made up by people who are social. Uh, it strikes me, especially this year, after reading so much from uh, Walt Whitman's biography, that uh, when we talk about we're not sure what kind of physical relationships he ever really had, and when it comes down to maybe he was just someone filled with longing and had an intense uh, fantasy and emotional life, on top of this amazing poetic voice that he could utter these astounding things about and brag about his physical relationships, perhaps in a way that they were never acted out. Uh, especially then, especially with that example, it strikes me more and more that there are many, many people in the world, they might even outnumber the sociable ones, who will never have a decent relationship, who will never have a marriage, who will never have a peaceful marriage, who will never have children, or if they do, they will never get used to having had children. They will not be good parents. Um, there are these, these ideals that we have for family or civic or social life are really just that. They are ideals. And most people uh, don't uh, go very far with them. For me, I've never gone very far with being a social person. I don't know really anymore that I'm shy. It's just that I just don't do it. And I, or if I do, I don't do it well. And it just needs to be acknowledged that that's, that's fine. And that if uh, my entry into humanity is through books or through the things that I've mentioned, outside of my family, if, if my entry into humanity is through uh, books and podcasts and documentaries, and then what I'm able to make of those into poetry, well then, what's so bad about that? I recall a few years ago when I had something like, uh, something like, not, not a breakdown, but something close to it. And the thing that pushed me out of it was, of all things, was watching a documentary about the life of Franklin Roosevelt. And I remember uh, like I was watching it while I was in the bath, and Roosevelt had just died, and, and they were playing clips of, of his funeral train going from Georgia up north to, uh, to D.C., I believe, and then up to New York. And whatever the narration was doing and the footage and, and the rest of it just hit me so hard that I just wept. Just, uh, 
in in a way I never felt more uh more pathetic but also uh more human in a way just sitting there sobbing in a bathtub over the over the death of Franklin Roosevelt and the effect that his death had on other people and that is and that is knowing full well that a documentary is not a person and that uh if I had met Franklin Roosevelt, he may not have liked me and I may not have liked him. Um, so many of our stories about other people, our anecdotes about other people, or our links to the past, uh, they, they, they presuppose that you will never know these people, that the story is what is important, not necessarily what it would have been like seeing them face to face. So that while on the one hand, I can understand people who are wary of technology, they're, they're, they don't think it's healthy that certain people only talk to other human beings online or through their phone, or that people are only able to do it on their computer or on their phone, or while hiding their identity or even taking on another identity if you want to call that lying under certain circumstances. On the one hand, I agree with that suspicion, and I think it's probably not healthy. But in another sense, uh, why is it so much better to, uh, to see someone in person sometimes, especially if you don't think you're capable of doing that? Uh, life is so strange. Life is so long. It is so uh, it is so filled with chance and doubt that if you find beauty and meaning uh, with another person through the intercessor of a screen or just a phone or uh, whatever it is, and if you know that you will never meet them down at a restaurant, um, on some level. Uh, each person has to be responsible for their own health, but on some level, I don't see a problem with that anymore. Uh, if if your alternative is to not be in contact with anyone at all, um, I certainly have no way of uh, of judging that position. And so to the final thing, uh, it led me to loneliness and empathy as a way of talking about art. And I came across this remark in the New York Review of Books, and they're talking about the poetry of John Ashbery. And they give a quote uh, uh, from one of his poems. And the, the reviewer says, uh, like Stephen Mallarmé, who enjoined us to remember that a poem is not a newspaper, John Ashbery attempts a parallel version of the English language in which a sentence doesn't merely exist to communicate its lexical meaning in the shortest amount of time. I'll read that again. John Ashbery attempts a parallel English in which a sentence does not merely exist to communicate its lexical meaning in the shortest amount of time. Now, I've quoted here before uh, another remark I came across by a scholar who said that in the past, poets and poetry, uh, poetry was a means of conveying emotion 
And nowadays, they are relics of language. And I would put this comment about John Ashbery in that same thing. Um, I've said before, especially recently, I've compared poetry to the newspaper, to the news. It's worth saying that there is a middle ground between what a newspaper does and uh, what avant-garde or experimental poetry does. And I believe, if I can bring it around to this full circle, it is that uh, four years old, immersed in silence, uh, I get going with talk radio uh, and listening to other people's voices. That listening to other people's voices and other stories continues with the Ken Burns stuff from when uh, I first became aware of them at 11 or 12 or 13 years old. It goes on to all of the things I mentioned, all of the basic things that are basically anthologies of people talking or of stories like William Trevor or Shakespeare's plays, collections of people talking and telling stories and the comfort that we can derive from knowing people who are created so well or recorded so well in books or elsewhere that we feel that we have made a connection with humanity somehow. And all of that comes back to, at least for me, and I wonder if this is true, as to why I prefer to write narrative poetry, poetry that is basically comprehensible, that you can basically read out loud and understand, and that tells a story, um, which sounds very old-fashioned these days, but I wonder if that is the uh, route it took for me to get there. And that in my own way, writing short monologues or short stories or short historical scenes or longer poems is my way of adding uh, my own voice to those things. To someone else out there who is also just looking for a voice, someone else who is up late at night and cannot sleep for whatever reason, or who is at school or at their job or just walking around and does not feel capable of interacting with people face to face but still needs some sort of human contact. Um, I wonder if that is ultimately what I've been trying to contribute, if I can. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.